Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I'm really excited to be here today with Jamie Brenner. Jamie is the author of many books, including The Husband Hour, The Wedding Sisters, The Forever Summer, which was a bestseller, and her most recent novel, Drawing Home. A graduate of George Washington University in D.C., Jamie worked at HarperCollins, Barnes & Noble, and Vogue, and currently lives in New York City. So welcome to Jamie. Thank you for having me, Zibi. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a fan. And I have to say, I can't believe you've been doing this for just a year because it seems like the amount of people you've spoken to and how much you've done for books, it seems like this has always been around. So thank thank you. you. And we need more of this. There's a lot of writers and not enough places to really talk about books. I love it. I'm, as you know, I'm like, I do this for fun. I mean, I, I really do. I love it. So it's all like a dream come true for me to be able to like spend my day sitting here talking to authors and reading books. And I mean, it's like so fun. So 
Anyway, <laughs> I'm glad other people are benefiting from my selfish joy. <laughs> they are, yes. That's, yes. So drawing home, I read the whole thing nonstop on an airplane. Like, could not put it down, plowed through, loved. It was so good and, like, so visual. Like, I just felt like it was better than all the other people on the plane reading, watching movies. Do you know what I mean? I was, like, so in it. So tell listeners a little bit about what Drawing Home is about and how you came up with the idea for the book. Okay, so Drawing Home is the story of a woman who works at the front desk of the American Hotel, which is an iconic hotel in the center of Sag Harbor, which is part of the Hamptons. And she's worked there for her whole life, date, you know, really trying to put things together for herself and her daughter. And at the start of the summer, one of the hotel's most famous bar patrons suddenly drops dead. And this is not a spoiler because it literally happens on like page two. And to the young mother, Emma, my protagonist, surprise, she finds out he has left his beautiful house on the water filled with priceless artwork to her teenage daughter, Penny. While she's trying to figure out how and why this happened, the artist's longtime patron from Manhattan sweeps into town to try to wrest this inheritance away from Emma and her daughter. And that's the beginning of the book. Just gets better from there. (laughs) You wrote throughout the book so beautifully about motherhood, and I know you have two daughters yourself. Here's one quote that I really liked. In the early days of motherhood, Emma had wanted nothing more than sleep. Now all she wanted was more time with her daughter. Then you say how much Emma misses the times when Penny would tuck her warm little body against hers while Emma, fully awake, counted the hours until she had to leave for work. If her own mother had been around, she might have warned Emma that the hardest stage of being a working parent wasn't when your child was small. The tricky part was when a kid was in middle school and high school. Someone had to keep track of Penny's friends, her moods, the overall temperature of her life. Emma should be that person, and lately she felt she simply wasn't doing a good job. Yeah. Talk to me about about that and sort of the ever-shifting demands of motherhood. Well, what no one told me, maybe some people get forewarned, but you think in the beginning, oh my gosh, this is the hardest part, being up all night and the feedings and the trying to decipher the needs— Anything is going to get easier. And what I and while that is a very, very difficult time, it never gets easier because the challenges just change. And what I'm finding now I feel like people are like like gonna, you know, they're like so upset to hear that it never gets easier. Well, it gets easier <laughs> in the sense that you as a mother have more freedom to go out and do your thing and your child's at school and you can communicate. Like you're not wondering like, oh, are you hungry? Are you tired? Right. Are you sick? What changes is the ability to fix their problems. Mm. And my daughters are now 18 and 15. And what I really missed with the 15-year-old was just being able to make her feel better by going to get ice cream or going to Mary Arnold for a toy or something. And what I'm hearing from even older mothers is this doesn't change even when your kids have kids of their own. And what I'm learning is it never gets easier, but the one thing you can do to make it easier on yourself as a mother is to understand that you cannot fix everything and it's not your job to fix everything. And trying harder and harder to control, which a lot of type A moms who, you know, these are moms who have careers and kids in this, the harder you work does not necessarily result in in better outcome. So part of motherhood, 
just like when you're pregnant and you need to let let go of your body because it's out of control, part of motherhood is that constant learning to let go a little bit because you cannot fix everything. That was probably the best advice. I <laughs> I feel like you are like literally talking directly to me. And <laughs> it's, I it, feel like the knee-jerk reaction to try to like protect the kids and yes. fix everything is is really overpowering. But, you know, I would never expect my mother to fix my problems at this stage. <laughs> I mean, I hope not. <laughs> and yet she still wants to, I'm yeah. sure. I mean, thanks, Mom. I know you're listening. <laughs> yeah. So that is part of what I explore in Drawing Home is both the ever-changing demands of motherhood and yet somehow it never does change, not from the minute you first hold your baby. You also talk a lot about art and artistic talent in this book, which I found very interesting. It's not always in fiction to hear about people creating this amazing work and everything. And you say, and B, one of the characters in your book knew she had an eye for artistic talent. And I like when you said, how did she know? The same way Henry, who was the famous artist, knew that the black and blue in the configuration of his painting would work. It was what she was hardwired to do. So do you think that we're all born with skills like this, especially in the visual arena, like art, art appreciation, you know, just being able to, you know, maybe even in the literary world? I do believe that we're all born hardwired with certain things. And I'm fascinated by people who have a visual sense because I have zero. And people who know how like to decorate a room or even how to put an outfit together. I feel like that is as innate for them as it is for me to put words down on paper. And it's something I I don't think, maybe you can study it, but people with a true eye, Mm -hmm. you're born with it. And while I was researching this book, I watched a documentary on and read books about Peggy Guggenheim. And I was really fascinated with her instincts for what was, not I want to say valuable art, because it's not about the monetary valuable, what was meaningful Mm -hmm. art. And she just knew and she trusted her instincts. And I do believe that's something you're born with, Like like an ear for music. Right. And I always say I wish I had a visual sense because I don't. And writing visual stuff in my books is the hardest thing. Like I have to look at rooms, research what's really in that room, and then transfer that to the page. I cannot, I have no visual vocabulary for beauty and architecture and art and clothing. Well, maybe you're like overcompensating because I literally, that's one of the things that I was so struck by was how visual your book was and how I felt like I was watching a movie. Like you have it, I can see the scenes so well. So whatever you've sort of, this this self-taught ability is, I don't know, I think it's pretty good. Well, anyway, (laughs) Henry, the artist at one point says, you know, no one, he's talking to Penny about, and Penny, the daughter at one point is thinking of doing a graphic novel. And when she says, you know, she doesn't know how. Henry says, no one ever knows how to do anything until they do it. So I was wondering if you've ever had a mentor as great as Henry who, like, convinced you to try. Is that how you started writing this way? Is Was anyone a mentor to you in this way for what you're doing? I never had a mentor like Henry. I never had a mentor, period, which, you know, I'd often wished I did have one. But that bit about no one ever knows how to do something until they do it is something I learned after a very long time of working in book publishing, actually. So I've wanted to be a writer since I was little. But to me, writers were these magical people who could just like put, they just wrote books. It Mm -hmm. just happened. And I'm like, I can't do that. 
you know, so I'm like, oh, I'll work in book publishing. At least I'll be around writers. The more I worked with writers, the more I realized a lot of them don't know what they're doing <laughs> any more than I did. You know, I saw manuscripts come in late. I saw manuscripts come in messy and not working. And I saw editors fix things. And I saw how much, you know, an art department can augment the story inside the book. And that realization that no one really knows is what gave me the freedom to try. But no one ever told me that. And I grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia, and it wasn't really like an artistic environment versus my kids who grew up in New York who see the day-to-day life of a lot of artistic people. So I had to learn after many years that no one is perfect, no one knows how. Like, the important thing is just the putting the effort in and, and trying. That's great advice, too. This is a very helpful morning here. <laughs> so Penny starts taking some little white pills, as you call them, mm-hmm. at a party with friends and finds that they end up really helping her. And they help her get through her boring summer job at this historical society. And she's basically self-medicating OCD, which you write about really beautifully as well. Have you seen this happening, sort of the self-medicating trend, if you will, with like friends of your kids or just here in the city or, or just around the country? You know, Penny was able to stop, but a lot of kids obviously can't really stop. So anyway, can you... Okay, I mean, I could literally do two hours on this topic, but we're okay. going to keep it brief. Let's do two I, minutes on this topic. I'm very opinionated. <laughs> okay. Okay. So when I was growing up, my parents said, don't do drugs, don't smoke pot, it's bad for you. And I'm like, okay. And I didn't. Mm-hmm. Like, it really wasn't that complicated for me. I don't want to do something that's bad for me. I don't want to disappoint my parents. So I'm like, I'll have the same talk with my 12-year-old. Like, this should go really well. I give her the spiel, and then she says to me, Okay, I understand it's bad for me, but honestly, I would take anything that makes me feel better, that can stop this endless cycle of obsessing in my mind. So I'm sorry, but I don't know if I can promise you that I'm never going to do drugs. And I was like, whoa. You know, it was really mind-blowing to me that there are kids who are not doing drugs to party because it's fun, but because they literally are trying to, like you said, self-medicate. And this changed my approach to how I talk about drugs with her. And of course, I brought in, you know, psychiatrists and professionals to help me deal with this. Did you know that she was having those types of thoughts before this conversation? I knew she had OCD, but I was, there's a lot of very good therapy for OCD, cognitive behavioral therapy. And then going further, there's dialectical behavior therapy. And this does help. I didn't realize that just like we have the impulse to go for the glass of wine after a stressful day, of course these kids have the same impulse. So the conversation, I think, sometimes has to change in the way we talk about drugs and smoking. And if there's a real problem that they're trying to fix, like let's try to help them with, you know, in a controlled way. That said, I'm really upset about this whole jeweling thing. Okay, these these jewels are marketed to these kids. It's very hard to detect. Like when we were growing up and someone's smoking pot in the bathroom, like mm-hmm. the parents knew. Like it is, these things look like UBS hard drives. You can't smell anything. And I'm hearing from psychiatrists, this is a huge problem. It's epidemic. And the amount of nicotine that's being absorbed through the jewel is so different than just smoking cigarettes. There's not even a protocol to how to get them off nicotine, like the way adults use the patch, whatever. Huge problem. So I think for parents, if you if you want to talk to your kids about drugs, also talk about why they're interested in it. 
because it's not just always peer pressure and it's not always just a party. So that's my condensed feeling on this. But I did explore this in the book because I think it's very prevalent right now. Kids are more anxious than ever. I'm hearing that. That's a statistical fact. And this juuling is, it's insidious. This is a really stupid question. Juuling and vaping are not the same thing, right? Those are two different things? And I'm still not even clear that, no, vaping is, the juul is the device, but vaping is any mechanism for smoking tobacco or pot through like pens. Basically, it's anything that's not the traditional joint cigarette or bong. Okay. Yeah. But they're both bad. I feel like they're all bad to, you know, stop this. But I didn't know if it, which part was the worst part. I'm understanding the jeweling is the worst because the way a, a lot of people jewel tobacco, not just pot, and the amount of tobacco that they're, and look, I'm not a doctor, but this no, is. No, I know. And know, I'm sorry. No, I shouldn't no, no, even. But, but, but. This is like, you know, I feel like I'm a relatively educated person who like reads the newspaper and I'm still confused. So I'm hoping maybe somebody else is confused and this is helping them. It is, it is confusing. And the the, the, the biggest problem with juuling is the tobacco levels are very, very high. And it's even more, you know, it's not like when we were kids and we'd smoke maybe a cigarette to experiment, you know, like these kids are getting addicted quickly and in a way that's very hard to get them off. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Well, I'm glad you tackled it in a in a fictitious way, even just to raise the conversation. Yeah. You also wrote a lot about divorce in this book. Yes. Um, Penny's dad re-enters the picture mm-hmm. in sort of an opportunistic way, not to give anything away. But at one point, Emma reads a letter from a lawyer and says, she must have let out a scream or a cry because Kyle came running from the other room asking what was wrong. Shaking, she handed him the first page. Emma started sobbing. And you follow this with the scene in the lawyer's office where you write, Emma glanced at Mark, who was her ex-husband. His expression was wounded, as if she were the one doing this to him. How unbelievable that she had once loved this man. He had held her hand while she gave birth. And now he was trying to destroy her life because that's what it would do if she lost Penny. How had she gotten into this position? How had things gone so terribly off course? Yeah. 
Talk to me about this. Well, you know, divorce, it's like, it's prevalent and oftentimes it's necessary. Like, you know, we go into marriage with the best of intentions and sometimes it just doesn't work out. You know, I think the till death do us part is a very, very high expectation. (laughs) And it is astonishing to me to see how you can go from, I love this person enough to try to spend my life with them to now I'm going to do the most hurtful things to them just because it didn't work out. And, you know, I went through a divorce and fortunately it did not get that acrimonious. But even the best of divorces, it's like you're hurting the person you once loved and it never, it's it's never good. Like I, I don't buy this whole, oh, we're like consciously uncoupling or whatever. Someone's hurting mm-hmm. in that process. The question is, can you hold on to some shred of, look, we once cared about each other. How far are you going to go? The problem is that the stakes are so high when you're dealing with kids Mm -hmm. because you're both equally as invested. And I don't know what the answer is, but I think the saddest thing about divorce is that you go from I love you to I hate you. And one of my favorite movies, although it's unrealistic and it's just a movie, I love that Nancy Myers movie. It's complicated Mm -hmm. when Meryl Streep and Alec Baldwin had been married and then they come back and have an affair, which obviously is not realistic or I wouldn't recommend that. But what I loved about the movie is they at least had some recognition that, you know what, there was a time when we had fun together and we have these kids and let's just raise a glass to that, you know? And I wish that could happen more often because the bottom line is there's some kernel of good in every couple who came together to have children. It's true. Oh, I'm like loving all your answers. I'm like letting them all sink in. And so on your website, not to keep jumping around, but on your website, you listed this whole history of your love of books, um, which was great. And I felt like so many of the authors that you loved along the way. Like I was a huge Judith Krantz. Those were my first books that were long, like like adult fiction, basically books that my mom gave me. And I was like, your mom gave them to you? Yes. Yeah. That's a whole conversation. Wow. Like Princess Daisy. Yeah. I was was like, these are like, I mean, those were, that was like porn basically. (laughs) I feel like, right? Oh yeah. I was like, all right, this is how I'm going to learn about all the stuff. I was like, I was like, 14 or something. She's my new hero. Oh, <laughs> I think she probably hadn't read that. I, I don't know. I don't know. But when you were talking about all the books and how they've sort of, you know, coursed through your life along different times and everything, you wrote that after your second daughter was born in 2004, as life became busier and more complicated, you said the main criteria for the books that you chose was escapism. Yes. Talk to me about that. You know, I'm hoping there are a lot of moms listening. So, Well, I'm trying, I remember exactly the book that someone gave me. It was in 2004, and my neighbor, who's a publicist, gave me the first Emily Giffen book, Something Borrowed. And um, it was like, you know, I was up every night in the middle of the night nursing, and I thought, oh, it's going to be a long time before I can, like, read or do anything. But the book was there, so when I couldn't fall back to sleep, I just started reading. And I was able to feel exactly the way I always felt with books. Like, I fell into it. I loved it. It wasn't work. It was, like, fun. And every night, instead of dreading being up at two, four, six, I looked forward to like at least getting a little reading in too. So I write, I guess, what you call beach reads. You know, they're beach books. They're set in the summer. They're set in beach towns. But when I was growing up, 
my beach books, like my guilty pleasure books, were the Judith Crans, those epic sagas of women finding their way in the world. And the early Judith Crans books were in the 70s. So they were super, super explicit sexually, but they were also just trying to, it was all part of the liberation of that time. So those are the early books I fell in love with, which were escapist, fun, wish fulfillment. Then I went through my whole like super literary phase in college as an English major, and then early in New York working with like super literary authors. And then I found my way back to like my true love, which is just commercial, fun, escapist romps. And it did start with being a new mother and not having the energy for books that made me work too hard. And I also didn't want books that were depressing. And I felt the same way about movies. Like I lost my interest in... Like, I don't need to cry. Like, I don't need to be depressed. Like, let's try to keep things positive. Like, I lost my taste for books that devastated me. Because I think you become more sensitive. Like, you become exquisitely tuned to life in all its dimensions when you become a mother. And when I came to books, from then on, I wanted books that fed positive. I feel like... Sometimes people get wrapped up in feeling like they should read certain books, right? Like maybe there are books that don't even really appeal to them, but everybody else says are amazing. But I feel like if people just would read what really they, what they really want to read, yes, just as long as they're reading, it's it's they'll get something out of it. Like don't wait to like get through a masterpiece when you have like two minutes to read at night. You know I mean? No, like, yeah. Just read, or maybe if that's your thing, if you love poetry, you love literary fiction, then like give yourself that gift every day. But don't force yourself into a category or feel guilty about anything you want to read, That right? Absolutely. Like there was a book that came out like two years ago and everyone's like, you have to read it. It's a masterpiece. And oh my God, it's devastating. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be devastated. Mm-hmm. I'm not reading this book. Yeah. Like I'm sure it's a masterpiece, but it's not, like, that's not, yeah, exactly. If you want to go back and read Edith Wharton, read Edith Wharton. Yeah. If you want to read, you know, if you want to go back and reread the Sweet Valley High books because you still have some in your collection and that's what makes you happy, do that. I mean, I feel like books are, like, the biggest gift and we don't have to answer to anyone. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So one of the one of the last lines of your book, not to give anything away again, you write, there had been plenty of challenging moments in her 14 years of motherhood, but it didn't get any harder than letting go. And I literally like stopped and was like, I think I'm going to cry reading this because, you know, parents at any age, you know it's coming, right? It's sort of like yes. death in a way, right? Like, you know it's coming. It's coming. You can prepare for it, but can you prepare for it? Not really. I mean, it just, it is what it is. It's like when someone's sick, like... I don't know, the mental, our our mental abilities to cope with some things, I feel like, are limited. Going to a kid going to college is obviously not as big a, a loss, but it's a loss nonetheless. It's like a loss of your stage of life. Yes, and one that I feel like with most motherhood ish type stuff, there isn't necessarily like a proper like transition preparation, right? The transition from not being a mom to a mom. There's so much written out there, but. 
that's like a whole, you know, the I don't, I don't know. I feel like there's some key stages and that being one of them where, well, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. I had like no sleep last night. Talk to me about that, please, Jamie. Take it away. <laughs> well, first of all, you did touch on something true, which is we don't have enough rites of passage in our culture to mark things like, like there's no, you know, we have ceremonies, we have birthdays, we have like bar and bat mitzvahs, but like we don't have a ceremony to mark the huge rite of passage, which is your child leaving the nest. In terms of preparing for that, I have strong thoughts on this as well. Oh, good. Excellent. (laughs) The best way to prepare for that is to, like, first of all, I love the name of your podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Make time to do what is right for you. Like, you can't do everything for your kids and not continue to develop who you are along the way, or you are going to be devastated when your child leaves, and you're not doing them a service. The best thing you can do for your child is to also make time to read, make time to have your hobbies, make time for your work. I remember when I was trying to decide whether or not I wanted to breastfeed and I went to my pediatrician, I was like, "Mm, I don't know if I want to. And she said, look, happy mom makes for happy baby. Okay, that's the only thing you have to really keep in mind. And I think this goes for grown mothers. If your life is full, your kids are going to benefit because you're happy and you're fine. And they don't feel like, oh my gosh, I'm leaving my mom. I feel guilty. It's, it's not their job to continue to like validate mm-hmm. our role as mother, right? Like right. they're leaving how their lives. We need to have our own foundation. And even though it feels selfish when they're little, taking the time to go to our book club or go to work or take that knitting class, like that is not selfish because that is going to be your child's going to be happy when she's 18 that she knows mom is going to miss her, but she's also going to be excited to have that extra time to continue doing what she loves to do. So I think the best way to prepare for your kid leaving growing up is to make sure you are whole as a person. Because I think the worst thing for a child is to feel it's my job to make mom's life complete. And she does everything for me and now I'm leaving. And it's like, you know, that's not, it's not good for them. I think divorced parents get this a little earlier, right? I feel like when I don't have custody of the kids, I've had I've learned over the last whatever four years how to make my own life full again. Yes, because at the beginning, not that it's not sad, I always miss them like crazy. But at the beginning, it was just so painful and devastating. I didn't know what to do with myself. Yes. Um, in part, this podcast and like reading all these books has really helped. And now my kids are like, well, what do you, how many podcasts are you doing when, when we're not with you? And like, which meetings do you have? And they're into it, you know? Yes, so they know yes. I'm not going to like sit around crying. Even, even if some parts of the weekend I do cry or I do feel really sad, like it's not their responsibility. Like I can't put this on them. That's right. So anyway, all to say, because, you know, other divorced moms out there know that you get these glimpses of like, okay, like, you know, the rain that's, you know, falling on the car in a storm is going to, you know, when you go under like an underpass and it, yes. it stops, you get those moments of breathing room to as like a preview. Whereas yes. moms who don't have that necessarily absolutely. are taken off guard, I think a little more at the end. I absolutely. Not the end, obviously parenting doesn't end, but. Right, no, absolutely. Um, One of the, the upsides to being divorced is you do get practice in having time to yourself and how yes. to feel that constructively and how not and how not to put there's always a saying, Oh, I, I missed you this weekend, but you don't want to make the child feel bad. Like, oh mom misses me and I miss her and this is a mess. Like again, yeah, like they hard. need to feel you're okay. Yes. 
and then they'll feel okay. Exactly. Kids are so sensitive. I mean, I feel like sometimes they can read my mind. Even when I act like things are fine, but I'm stressed inside, do you feel like this too? Yes. They like can they have this like they can like strip everything away and see inside, like no matter how much I hide it. So you actually can't fake it necessarily. You have to be okay. <laughs> yes. And but then look, not totally. I mean, obviously every, you know. You don't I mean I think you don't have to always pretend you're okay for your kids, but I think the important thing is the child never feels it's their job to fix yes. or to make you yes. happy. That's a better way to say it. Um and if you're not okay to be like, I'm having a really rough day. Like, because kids exactly. need to know that you have rough days, too. Absolutely. Or like, I'm really worried. I have a lot of work. I have this. Or, you know, I'm worried about this. You know, whatever. Th- that's It's okay. More, yes. It's better than when you pretend and then everything just feels off. I feel like. Right. Exactly. It's like, if you're sick, you need to, I think, I believe in being honest and saying, look, I'm sick, but I'm taking care of myself and it's going to be, you know, it's hopefully going to be fine. But again, it's just, I think, the way you convey your struggles in that they're being dealt with and... It is never the child's job to help you right. deal. I mean, not. I mean, hopefully they grow up as empathetic people. Right. But you know, my mother, you know, she was just when I grew up and left, it was almost like a "How dare you?" Mm-hmm. It was like a "How after everything I've done for you, how dare you go have your own life?" And I think that's the flip side to that. Like, you know, it's like, well, I didn't. That's not really, you know, right. it's not now my job to go and raise you. Right. Y- you know, so I just think be a human being, be honest, but make the child understand it's not their job to, to fix your problems. Yeah. This has become like a, a parent coaching session that we're having here. This is well, like, <laughs> I love it. No, I love talking to moms with kids a little bit older than my kids. I feel like I always, that's how I get through life, right? It's so, well, it's so complicated. And, you know, and I'll tell you, because because my youngest daughter is so complicated, I've had so much, I've been fortunate to have great therapists. And I've learned so much, like, just by talking to therapists and learning things like, you don't have to fix everything. And, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's there's no handbook and it's never easy but being harder on yourself is never the solution like i think that's what moms need to know like being harder on yourself or making yourself miserable is probably not the answer Good call. <laughs> yeah. So back to writing for a second. What's coming next? You've been like cranking out these books yes. one a year. Wh- where are you going next summer? Okay. <laughs> so yeah. So I've been going to a different beach town every summer, and I did Provincetown, the Jersey Shore, Sag Harbor, and next year I'm going back to Provincetown because I fell in love with this place so madly and. I was researching a book and ended up making lifelong friends. So I'm going back to Provincetown, which for anyone who doesn't know is at the very tip of Cape Cod. And next summer will be the 400th anniversary of the town. So there's that. And I also do love the Hamptons. And I'm actually going to go to the North Fork for my 2021 book to explore wine country a little bit. Oh, love that. So those are my next two locations on the, on the docket. So cool. Yeah. How great to structure your writing life around fun vacation places. Yeah, I have to say it's it's tough work, but someone's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really glad you've done it. And thank you for all the, the true like entertainment and education that you provide to readers. And it's been great getting to know you and reading your book. You too, Zibi. And thank you so much for giving moms and writers and readers a place to get together. We need, we need it in so many ways, as we've discussed <laughs> today. So thank you, seriously. Of course. No, my pleasure. 
Jamie. Today's episode was sponsored by Cereal Box, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, CerealBox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.